Welcome to the Wolf Admin Podcast. Today I had a great discussion with Dr. Anthony Padani. Dr. Padani is not an optometrist. He is a clinical and research pharmacologist at Nebraska Medicine who specializes in HIV and tuberculosis treatments. I've wanted to have Tony on since I originally conceived of starting a podcast because of my deep fascination with the health and social implications of HIV. We discussed historical, current, and future HIV treatments and how that impacts clinical and social aspects of the disease and of the patients who are suffering from that disease. Understanding Dr. Padani's perspective has really helped me serve my patients better, and I hope it does for you as well. Please enjoy our conversation. And as always, if you want to get the most current episodes, be sure to subscribe to the podcast and give us a five-star review. In general, you know, I, I told you a little bit about, and I don't know if, if kind of this is how you grew up as well, but my, I, I've always been fascinated in a, um, about HIV and AIDS since I can remember growing up as a kid. I mean, you know, I don't know about you, but when, when we were, when I was growing up, I remember like the Ryan White story. And I remember that, you know, in, in my mind, AIDS was a disease that anybody that could, that was having sex was going to get. So it actually was like a huge deterrent for me. And, yeah. um, and then, you know, come to find out like years and years later, I mean, throughout undergrad and throughout optometry school, um, and I'm, I'm not trying to fast forward too much, but it, um, you know, even in optometry school, you know, you knew there were patients who had higher risk factors for contracting HIV, but yeah. I never realized how stark the difference was. So that's kind of, I mean, that even just reignited my fascination with, with the disease, with some of the, um, the, I'm going to call it politicization, but, but really you had to make it less of a social stigma, I think for, in order for people to take take it seriously. They had to destigmatize it. It had to be a disease that anybody could get. And so I kind of want to, I want to talk about some of that stuff. Um, yeah, and I want to talk absolutely. about what you've been, what you've been doing and what you've been working on. So what are your thoughts about that? Did you grow up the same way? Yeah, absolutely, Chris. Um, you know, and this, these are still things that we battle here in 2019. So um, there's still a lot being done on the stigma, um, but there is still a lot of stigma attached to HIV. Um, it's one of the reasons why you'll find our HIV clinic at the Nebraska Medical Center off campus, mm. um, because a lot of our a lot of our patients, you know, don't want to be seen coming in, you know, to going to and from their clinic appointments um, at a clinic that's essentially, you know, being or known as an HIV clinic, that type of thing. So um, there's stigma still attached with the disease, but um, but we've come a long ways. And I think, think. Oh, go ahead. Go ahead. Well, I was just going to say, you know, I think HIV, though, um, as a as a disease, as a as a medical field, is one of the real um, true accomplishments of the last hundred years of what we've been able to do, you know, over the last thirty years with with a disease that's um, essentially was a death sentence, and now we've we've turned it around to where somebody can live, you know, a full a full life with the disease as long as they're adherent to their medication. Yeah. So when you see patients, I mean, a couple of things that, that I want to kind of delve into first, you know, I saw two patients just last week on Truvada and, mm-hmm. um, you know, I, I'm still not sure. I want to kind of back up a little bit because I'm not sure that, that the understanding of just the eye care community of, of Truvada, if, unless you're really in the trenches, seeing a lot of like CMV and kind of rare, retinal diseases that also accompany um, HIV, 
most of us in primary care are just not seeing that sort of thing. So, you know, we might just kind of stumble on that medication and and not really know what it is. So, can you kind of go, give our listeners an overview of Truvada and PrEP and if Truvada, Truvada, my understanding is Truvada is just an avenue for PrEP, but there could potentially be other things in the future yeah. that would be PrEP. So can you kind of yeah. talk about that in, in, in sort of a basic level? Yeah. Um, I tell you what, why don't we back up a few years even before that? So, um, you know, our first drugs for HIV really came online uh, in the late 80s. So 88, 89, we had AZT. So I think most of your listeners probably are aware of AZT and know the history behind AZT. But then as we moved through the 1990s, um, we quickly realized that treating HIV with just a single drug um, wasn't going to work. And it was mainly due to the, the ability of the virus to, to mutate and develop resistance um, against, against the, the single agent drugs. So we quickly moved to uh, triple drug therapy. And, and that's been the standard of care oh, for the last 20 years now. Um, and triple drug therapy um, has really done wonders for us. So it allows us to fully suppress the virus, um, at least in the blood of our patients. Um, so then when we um, have a patient that's on daily treatment, we can actually uh, draw blood from them. And with our commercial assays, we cannot detect HIV. Now, that doesn't mean that these patients are no longer infected. It just means that we have the virus suppressed to a level where our, our just everyday assays cannot detect it. So then you fast forward into the 2000s, and we really start looking at ways to keep um, patients that are at risk um, from contracting the virus. And some early studies from the CDCs, primarily with macaques and monkey, other, you know, pigtail macaques and those type of things, um, found that we, if you actually gave uninfected animals um, our HIV drugs, and then expose them to the virus, that you could actually keep these animals from contracting the virus. And mm. so then in the mid-2000s, um, we, we started moving this, translating this into humans, and we had a number of very large trials that were called PrEP trials, so pre-exposure prophylaxis. So pre-exposure prophylaxis is just what you were talking about, Chris. So it's, it's giving patients that are at risk medicine to protect them from getting HIV um, when they're when they're engaging in at risk acts, so these these clinical trials then in the late you know the late two uh, thousands and around two thousand ten and such, um, really the the first uh, handful of them really failed, and um, it was a bit it was a bit um, concerning for the HIV community because we knew in the animal studies that these drugs conferred re, uh, conferred protection, but in, when we rolled it out into human trials. Um, these drugs just weren't working. Hmm. And what we found was that when we went back and looked at drug levels in these in these participants that were supposed to be randomized to a, a drug-taking arm of the study, that we, we, we found very incomplete adherence to study medications. So... Um, well, wait, what, why, why do you think that was? You know, I think it goes back to some of that stigma. Um, so a lot of the early PrEP trials were done in, done in women in sub-Saharan Africa. And they were done with, you know, daily HIV medications, or they were done with um, vaginal gels, uh, microbicides, those type of things. And there was just the stigma of taking a medication that was was known to treat HIV um, and having to take it every day. And I think there was, you know, just that stigma in patients. You know, patients in general, you know this as a clinician, you know, it's 
it's, it's very hard to get patients to stick to a regimen every single day, especially if they have to do that for, you know, an extended period of time. Um, but that well, was especially the when they're, when they're not sick or when they don't think they're sick, right? Absolutely. And do you Absolutely. think it also, not to bring in any of the like uh, conspiracy theorists, but do you think that some of like the Peter Duesbergs of the world hurt some of that where people will just not take their medication because they don't think they're going to, they don't think HIV is real? Is there any of that left or is, no. did that hurt some of those trials? You know, I don't think so. Not in the, in the populations that we were, we were studying at the time. I think mm -hmm. it was more just the stigma and the burden of having to take medication every day. Well, we see that too. I mean, just in eye care, you know, from a, from a glaucoma medication adherence standpoint, um, you know, it's a disease that obviously causes no symptoms until later on. And, you know, that's, it's a, it's a challenge, especially I would say in my patient population, it seems to be less of an issue, but mm -hmm. certainly in, in, um, like where I was trained, uh, in an IHS hospital, patients in general would, would be less adherent to that, to that medication dosage, um, even when, you know, even, even if they, their medications were covered, even if it was paid for. So I don't know what that says, but, um, I'll yeah. just throw that out there. Absolutely. And there's, there's a number of things. So then, so then let's fast forward to about 2010. And so there was a big trial called the IPREX study. Um, and the IPREX study was actually a, a trial of Truvada, the drug that you just mentioned. So for your listeners, Truvada is a single tablet that contains two HIV drugs. So it contains a drug called tenofovir and a drug called emtricitabine. And so the IPREX study enrolled um, really two of our most high-risk population for contracting HIV, and that's um, our gay men, so men who have sex with men, and then um, our transgendered women who have sex with men. Um, and it enrolled 2,500 um, of these at-risk men and trans women and um, randomized half of them to take this daily Truvada tablet, um, and the other half got placebo. And uh, followed these patients for about an average of a year to a year and a half. And what they found was in the in the Truvada arm that the risk of contracting HIV was actually 40, 44% reduced as compared to placebo. And so this was our first real big signal that, okay, we can, we can get this medicine to work as a, as a pre-exposure prophylaxis um, in, an, in a high-risk population. But what we did then is we went back and looked at um, okay, for those 30-some individuals that contracted HIV that were supposed to be in the drug-taking arm, um, we went back and looked at blood levels for them and checked to see how much drug they actually had in their, in their system. Mm -hmm. And what we found was that um, only like three out of the 34 that contracted HIV in the, in the drug-taking um, arm actually had drug in their system. Mm. Okay. So, so you and I both know that a drug that's not taken doesn't work, right? Right. So, so then when we, when we went back and corrected for drug adherence and those type of things, actually the protection rates uh, were, were 93 plus percent. And so, you know, really just a very strong signal. And that was the, the study that actually led to the, the FDA approval for Truvada to be used as PrEP, which eventually followed in uh, 2012. Now, so now we have me, we have a daily option for for people at risk to take medicine to protect them from from getting infected. And you you were you were involved in in some of those trials. Is that correct? Yeah. So I I was a student during the the IPREX trial, but uh, I remember. So I spent a lot of time at our HIV clinic, even as a student. Um, so I remember um, we were a clinical site for the for the IPREX trial, um, and so we we did and we continue to this day take part in many of these large trials. 
And um, so when you think about like reducing, so that translates essentially into like a 95% risk reduction. Is that correct? Am I, am I understanding the, the stats there? Correct. Absolutely. Yep. Okay. And so to, to give, to give me a sense of um, when you're talking about these high at risk populations, is there known, you know, do do they calculate number of encounters? I mean, what's the risk in terms of, um, of like numbers of exposures? I mean, yeah. can you kind of break that down a little bit more and then, and then what Truvada actually does protect, like what that risk is now yeah. or that number of exposures is now increased to? Yeah. So to begin with, you know, um, I always say that HIV is not, um, our, our most infectious, uh, viral, um, infectious agent that we worry about. If you think about hepatitis, it's, yep. it seems to be a lot more infectious. Um, but to give you an idea of risk per act, so we always put it in risk per act okay. and it takes about, um, so risk per act Our our most highest, um, sexual risk per act is uh, what we call receptive anal intercourse. And yep. that's carries a risk of anywhere between half a percent. And then on the high side, maybe 3%, okay. um, risk. And then, so if you think about somebody that's on Truvada, that's, you know, essentially down to very, you know, far less than 1%. And as a matter of fact, in, in some of the more recent, uh, prep studies, we actually are seeing, um, very few, uh, breakthrough infections and in, in people that are, that are actually taking their drug every day. Um, but then, you know, you get into, to other things. So you think about the IV drug user community, um, you know, needle sharing with IV drug use, probably somewhere, oh, about a 1%, probably, I would say. So that's um, actually less likely. IV drug use is less likely to, to transmit HIV than anal sex is. Yeah, they're pretty close. I would say, you know, you know, the number that I typically hear is about 1% with IV drug use. Uh, and then receptive inter anal intercourse is probably anywhere from a half to 3%, depending okay. on which study okay. you look at. Okay. Um, but then, you know, um, and again, this assumes, I, I should clarify that, that assumes, you know, condomless uh, a sex there. Correct. Yeah. Um, but then you have things like, um, you know, a, a childbirth. So take a mother that's, that's infected with not on therapy. Um, goes in for vaginal delivery, you know, the risk there, depending on what her viral load is, can be anywhere, you know, 20 plus percent of transmitting to the, oh, wow. to the child. So, but at least in the United States, we've done a very good job of, um, of catching mothers that are infected, you know, during pregnancy, um, and getting them on treatment. And we know that if we get their viral load down, then this essentially, we can almost get down to zero as well. Yeah. Wow. It's fascinating. So do you see, so let me, let me talk to me about kind of, cause you do research, but you also mm -hmm. are a clinician as well. Is that correct? Mm -hmm. Yeah. Although, you know, um, I used to spend more time in the clinic, um, anymore with my research program, you know, it's, I have international sites with my program research program. So, um, it consumes most of my time. So I'm usually in the clinic, maybe a couple of days a month. Yeah. Um, but I do still get over there from time to time. Yeah. How many physicians are seeing patients there? You know, um, we've grown over the years. So, you know, our patient population, we draw, um, I say we draw uh, Nebraska out to about Grand Island to the west. Uh -huh. And then we, we pull in patients from, you know, Council Bluffs, Western Iowa, those type of, those type of things. Um, and our patient population, 
when you look at just total numbers of patients, we're probably at about 1,100 patients. Uh-huh. Now, not to say that those are all engaged in care. Um, engaged in care, it's probably more like 700-ish. Um, but for that, we have, um, we've grown over the years. When I first started, we just had two physicians, our medical director and, a, and another um, physician. But we've grown over the years. We now have um, four full-time physicians and three nurse practitioners. So it's a pretty, it's a pretty busy clinic. Um, and like I said, we probably see upwards of 700 patients that are engaged in, in regular care with us. When you think about these medications, you know, um, AZT uh, historically was sort of a nasty, nasty drug. Right. And, um, and so there was that stigma that you talked about before, but a lot of, you know, in eye care, when we think of antivirals, you know, they're very, you know, they're, they're very safe medications, you know, when, for us, we're typically using, you know, um, acyclovir, valacyclovir, gancyclovir. Um, and so, so those, and they tend to work really well on herpetic eye disease that, that we see com- more, way more commonly. Mm-hmm. And um, so what, what is the tolerance? Like what's the risks associated with Truvada say that, that you've really got to monitor for and watch for? Yeah. So, you know, AZT is actually in the same family of drugs um, that the two drugs are in Truvada. So these are called nucleoside reverse transcriptase inhibitors. And so what these do is these um, mimic endogenous nucleotides. So think your adenine, thymine, those type of things. Um, the the risk with our earlier agents, they were they were a lot more toxic than the drugs that we have now. So risk with tenofovir amitriptyline, which is what's in Truvada, um, it's pretty well tolerated. So when I think about those two drugs, you know, when we initiate therapy on somebody, they might have a couple of days of nauseousness or, or headache or those type of things, but mostly that's time limited. So that goes away after the first few days, and then they're pretty well tolerated. And then it becomes things that the, the patient really can't see. So um, we know that tenofovir, with, with many, many years of use, um, can actually have some, some negative effects on kidney function. Mm-hmm. Um, but you know, obviously, we monitor that every six months if patients are on Truvada. Um, and then the other thing that um, as we use these drugs longer and longer, and as our patients stay, stay, stay alive longer, um, we're starting to maybe see a signal with um, a bone mineral density in, mm. in patients on long-term Truvada. Um, now, there's things that there's things that we've done as a field to try to improve some of this, and uh, and we can get into that. But um, but you, you're really looking at somebody that needs to be on these drugs for many many years to um, to to start to see these effects, unless they had they come in with some underlining you know renal disease, then that can exacerbate that. But you know, for an otherwise healthy patient, you know, we just haven't had prep long enough to see to see long term effects um, from these drugs. Yeah, I mean, we're still, you know, we've had like prostaglandin analogs for twenty years now, I think, and you know, we're still just within the last few years, kind of noticing some of the the changes in orbital fat when patients have been on that medication for ten, fifteen, twenty years. You know, I mean, yeah. so we kind of see it, but. But it can take so many years to kind of even tease out all of the potential side effects. One of the yeah. things I, I've noticed in patients, um, and again, uh, patients with either HIV or uh, on, you know, kind of older medications is that sort of uh, lipodystrophy, almost like yeah. where for our listeners, I'm going to try to explain it. I'm probably not going to explain it well, but almost like their cheeks 
are sunken in, but higher up. It's not, it's not, it, it sort of has that almost like a divot right at their cheeks. You know, you, that, I'm, I'm describing that correctly, aren't I? Absolutely, Chris. And do we you know, see that with Truvada? Um, we don't see a lot of it with Truvada, um, but we, I, I still see the light, you know, so the field is, you know, it used to be called lipodystrophy. I think um, now the field likes to say fat redistribution because it okay. tends to present dip- differently in, in males than females. Um, but you know what, when you go to the HIV conferences, you can, you can tell the people mm-hmm. that have, have been on antiretroviral therapy for many years, because you do, you, you can see their cheekbones, you can see this fat redistribution. Um, but yeah, our newer drugs, we just, we just don't see that, Chris. Um, our newer drugs are, are, I mean, as you know, I'm a, I'm a clinical pharmacist and I tell my patients, you know, these drugs are very, very well tolerated. When you dive into the package insert and you look at, you know, um, adverse events in the in, in drug treated arm versus placebo arm they they very much mimic what you see in the placebo so where you might see three percent headache in the in the placebo arm you're seeing maybe four percent in the drug treated mm-hmm. arm so just very very well tolerated drugs that we have these days that's excellent do you see um so then it tends to be getting less and less of a stigma I imagine it's not a cheap medication no it's it, it, cheap as in financial, is that what you're getting at? You correct. Yeah, 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 yeah. Like, yeah. A, a, so, yeah. yeah, the price, you know, that, that was one of our hurdles early on with, with prep is that, um, you know, it took a while for us to convince, you know, the big payers, the insurance companies to, to pay for medication, you know, for somebody that, that, that wasn't infected. Um, but you know, we've, we've got past that hurdle and, and now most of the big carriers cover prep. Mm. Um, it's still not covered on our, on our Ryan White program. Um, well, explain but, that um, to me. But, can you, can you, you talk know, to me about that? So that's a hemophiliac. No, Ryan White is, um, has evolved over the years. Now it's, it's actually, um, a drug assistance program to, um, help pay for HIV drugs for anybody who's infected that meets, um, income qualifications. So we have, okay. um, w- wasn't Ryan uh, White. He was the one that in the eighties that, uh, he, he got HIV from a blood transfusion. Is that correct? Absolutely. And, okay. and ended up passing away. And, um, a lot of things have been, been done in his name. And one of them is the Ryan White program, which helps cover, uh, a drug HIV medications. Actually, it's moved on over the years. It actually has expanded where we can actually put a lot of our other, um, you know, co, co, comorbidity medications on, on our Ryan mm-hmm. White, um, grant, grant now as well. Okay. And actually with, with the birth of the ACA, um, the, uh, the ACA allowed us to do some things where we can actually enroll, um, our patients that didn't have healthcare previously into these, you know, these, these, um, these single, uh, not single Perry, these, uh, the marketplace, right. To go out and buy them, to buy them insurance. And actually we can use some of the Ryan White grant funds to cover their premiums Mm -hmm. then. And it helps engage these people in care a little bit more and, um, you know, pay for their drugs, pay for their, their visits and those type of things. Well, do you think that, so it's a safe medication. It sounds like it needs to be monitored every three to six months, depending on the, the, the patient. Are you seeing that, um, more primary care doctors are having this conversation with their patients or they just don't want to even deal with it and they send them to a clinic like yours? No, absolutely. Um, the, the primary care, uh, providers are getting more and more comfortable with it. So, um, you know, PrEP was, was approved in 2012. 
um, it was kind of a slow uptake into the provider community. Mm-hmm. Um, we actually surveyed um, Nebraska and Iowa providers in 2015, I believe, and we surveyed both physicians and and pharmacists, and we said, you know, it was just a simple survey. Do you know about prep? Um, and then if they didn't, you know, we a, a few paragraphs about prep, and would you be willing to participate in a prep program? You know, would you be willing to counsel and those type of things? And for the most part, you know, um, the, you know, the knowledge wasn't out in the field yet. There was only about thirty percent that were fully aware of prep and what it all entailed. Um, but on the on the positive note was that most providers were excited and willing to um, prescribe prep if they had more information about it. Mm-hmm. Um, and that held true pharmacists and physicians. So um, we there's been some other similar studies to that done, you know, on the national level, and I think. We've moved now to a point where most primary care clinicians are aware of PrEP. Um, at the Nebraska Medical Center, we do a fall conference every year where we bring in uh, primarily primary care providers from across the state who are interested in, you know, caring for HIV or, or, or you know, um, handling PrEP for their, their at-risk patients. And we, you know, do an overview of these, of what you need to know and, um, you know, what you need to monitor and those type of things. So, so we do see more and more um, primary care clinics um, getting getting involved with with prep and and its monitoring. It's amazing to me. I mean, I guess the longer I've been I've been in you know in healthcare and out of school, the the reality that I mean, you had a medication that was approved in 2012, and you're asking about it three years later to a group of primary care physicians. I mean, it, it just speaks to the volume of information that they have to manage. You know, Absolutely. all of us have to manage, and and thirty percent of them still didn't know what that is. What do you think that? What do you think the percentage is now, after seven years, on prim- for primary care? Yeah, I would say probably eighty plus percent are aware okay. of prep. Yep. Okay. Yep. Um, yeah. So if if you want to even get <laughs> on a more scarier note, so if you go back to twenty thirteen, there was an initial survey done of infectious disease doctors. So you're talking one year huh. after prep approval. Yeah. And the the amount of ID doctors that were fully aware of prep at that time was was uh was not was not as high as you would you would think it would be. No, I mean I forget, that's, the, I forget the exact number, but but it was it was surprising to me that even a year after prep approval, that not all ID doctors were aware of prep. Yeah, well, it's just I think it's again, it's just I mean that that doesn't really surprise me. I mean, there's there's things I see being done by certain clinicians, and you know that are specialist clinicians that you're like, you're still doing that. Like yeah. that's stuff that we, you know, they just don't do anymore, you know? Yep. So, yep. um, yeah, I mean, I guess we all get in sort of our own and I'm not, you know, I'm sure I do stuff that people be like, well, really, you're doing that. But, um, we all kind of get in our ruts and, you know, I try to make sure that, that I'm staying on top of everything, but I know there's stuff that I'd miss. There's just so much information. Yep. Yep. Absolutely. Medicine and, and healthcare in general is really a lifelong learning, um, endeavor. Yeah. Do you think that, um, that you guys are seeing because of the the type of clinic, I would imagine that you're seeing lots of, of, of other, uh, infectious disease, specifically STDs at that clinic. Is that, is that the case? Yeah, we do. And, you know, Douglas County as, as a whole has a high rate of STDs and, um, but we do see a fair amount of it. Now we, um, we, as part of our prep protocols and, and, um, and part of our, our treatment plans, um, we do screen. Um, pretty intensively. So, um, so I, I would say we, we try to keep a handle on it, but, 
but yeah, STA rates, STI rates in our in our population is quite high. What do you think? Um, so, what's the psyche of of patients now compared to you know pre prep? Do you think that it, are they? Do they feel like they're more empowered? Are they um, are they engaging in riskier behaviors that that may actually lead to some of these other STDs? Yeah, that's a great question, Chris. So, and this has been studied. So, um, after IPREX, there was a number of studies, one of them being the IPERGAY study, IPER. Um, they actually studied risk behavior and, and found that um, there wasn't a whole lot of change um, in behavior um, when, when, MS, when men who have sex with men were, were given PrEP. Um, so, that was a bit reassuring. Um, I will say, though, on, on, you know, as a whole, that I think PrEP has been empowering for, for many of our patients. Um, as you know, there's this, there's this new movement on the treatment side that, um, that's called U equals U, and you're, you'll probably hear more about this as we, as we go forward. Um, you, know, you know, President Trump mentioned ending HIV in his State of the Union address um, back in February. And so um, one of the things that, that they're going to try to do in the U.S. is get this awareness out that U equals U. So what this means is that undetectable means untransmittable. Hmm. And so what we know, Chris, is that if we have an HIV-infected patient and we put them on treatment and get their, their virus to what we call undetectable in the blood, that they essentially have a 0% chance of transmitting that virus to an uninfected partner. And so I think that's really, if you think about these serodiscordant um, couples where maybe one, one partner's infected and the other's not, mm-hmm. you know, that's really empowered the, the, the infected partner to get on treatment and to know that, you know, they cannot, you know, even in the absence of condoms, they cannot transmit virus to, to their partner if they're adherent to their medication. Do they still use, sorry to jump in, but are you still using, do you use the same medications in PrEP once they have, they've contracted HIV or now you're on a whole different cocktail? So now you're on treatment. And so, you know, up until the last year, triple drug therapy has been the standard of care. Um, and triple drug therapy really at the moment is still the standard of care. But within the last 12 months, we've had a number of studies that showed um, dual therapy with, with certain select agents can, can probably be the same as certain three drug cocktails. Um, so, yeah, so, um, you know, that's always our fear is somebody that's on PrEP and becomes infected. And that's why we, why we test our press PrEP patients every 90 days. Um, but, yeah, once they're infected, um, we actually flip them over and they, they follow treatment guidelines instead of, okay. instead of prep guidelines. Okay. And so then, um, so then uh, are you seeing, um, so give me an idea of, so we talked about, I want to take a little bit of a step back. We talked about the, um, you said risk per encounter or a number of count. What was the, the scale for a risk per act or a number risk, of acts? Yeah, yeah. Risk per act. So, yep. so heterosexual male, heterosexual female, um, vaginal intercourse, what, what is the risk for that? Let's say that, let's say that the woman has HIV. What is the risk to the man? You know, off the top of your head. Um, yeah. So, so that would be inserted vaginal inco- intercourse, um, about <laughs> 0.05%. So maybe five infections per 10,000 acts. Okay. And Whereas, that's, that's, that's on somebody that's, you know, say the woman wasn't on treatment. And so the best, so best case scenario, if you compare that to anal intercourse, uh, and I guess I didn't ask the the difference, the distinction between, um, what'd you call it? Insertion 
Yeah. So, you know, yeah. Top partner, bottom partner type of thing. Right. So so receptive anal intercourse is about fifty. you know, probably around 50 infections per 10,000 exposures to to an HIV infected partner. So it's about 10% less or or a tenfold higher. Yeah. Right. Okay. Yep. And then what if, what if you flip that around? What if, what if, um, it's the, uh, a male who's infected with a female, uh, what's, what's the female's risk? Mm, it's, I think it's about twice as high as, as the male's okay. risk. So, so maybe, maybe 10 infections per 10,000 ex- exposures, that, that type of thing. So is you it know, even worth 1%? Yep. So then does it, um, do you sort of tilt the scales? When when would somebody kind of tilt the scales? Heterosexual male, heterosexual female, no IV drug use, maybe just um, maybe just uh, promiscuous, or maybe they're um, a sex worker. What when does that risk tilt to where they're going to start prep? Typically, yeah, I think I think you've said a, a few key words there. So it's it's the number of partners. Mm-hmm. Um, it's it's knowing the status of the partners. So you know, so if somebody you know, tells me they have, you know, multiple partners a month, different partners, but they absolutely know the status of those partners, then they're probably at less risk than if they have, you know, three or four partners and don't know the status of any of those partners. Mm -hmm. Um, but, um, but then, you know, I heard the word, the female sex worker, those type of things, um, you know, those are always, you know, set off some alarms about, you know, maybe this person's person's at a good candidate for prep. Yeah. But, you know, you know, we do have a lot of, um, um, patients that do come into the clinic and I think they're more anxious than, than anything, um, that, that we find that, you know, they're, they're not a good candidate for prep simply because, you know, they're, they're not our highest risk individuals. And we, mm-hmm. you know, once you explain to them, you know, you know, what the risk is with certain acts and those type of things, you know, if they're in a fairly, um, monogamous relationship, you know, then, you know, and the, they, they know the status of their partner, you know, there's not much, um, use and, and taking a daily medication. But, you know, I would say our, our, our target population now in 2019, our highest risk individuals are going to be far and away the, the MSM. So men who have sex with men, mm-hmm. um, and specifically African American and Latino population, those seem to be even at a higher risk than, than whites. Why is that? You know, I don't know. I, I don't know if it's just, um, you know, in engagement in healthcare, um, you know, those type of things. I I don't know the data well enough. I just know Mm -hmm. that, um, you know, whereas white gay men were, were our, were our most prevalent, um, HIV, um, patients in the, in the eighties and nineties, it's sort of shifted now to black and Hispanic, uh, gay men in the U S. Well, there was a documentary, um, you know, so again, I'll use the term documentary loosely because I've seen it on YouTube. So who knows, you know, the credibility of it, but you know, they're, they actually do stories of, and it seems to be, it's always, um, African-American males, but in, um, like Alabama and Mississippi, where it's sort of like they're sharing how they contracted HIV. Yeah. Um, but the other thing that I thought was really fascinating was, uh, and I'm, you may not see this, but maybe it was before prep, but there was sort of this, can't remember what they called it, but there was sort of this movement for, um, people who were so anxious about becoming HIV positive that they almost wanted to get HIV so that they they could just start their treatment and and be yeah. done with it. Yeah. Have you seen that? I mean, is that real? 
Yeah, so I I did see that a couple of times. So um, and we we called these these patients were the bug seekers, and yes. so they would yeah, that's what know, they called them. You know, just wanted to get it. You know, there was so much anxiety about becoming infected that they would just you know go out and get try to get infected so that the you know the anxiety was over. Um, but anymore, you know, um, I think we've done a lot a lot with you know the communities that are hit hardest and the knowledge is out. So I'll give you an example. So that first prep trial, remember I told you. Um, it only had the IPREX study. So it only had about a 44% risk reduction overall in the study. We really didn't get to those 90 plus percent risk reductions until we looked at patients that were actually taking their medication. Mm -hmm. Now, fast forward to, oh, just a few weeks ago when, um, when results of the discoverer trial, um, were released, um, earlier this month in Seattle. Um, this is a follow-up study, um, comparing Truvada to a, a newer basically a newer version of Travada, some, some newer pro-drugs of, of tenofovir that we're using now. Um, and that what we found was that um, the overall um, number of infections was, was far less than the IPREX study, um, even though the Discover trial enrolled almost double what the IPREX study is. And so I think what, what it shows is that the word is, is sort of out um, in these communities that you know, we, we have a strategy that works um, if you take your drugs. So I think we saw a lot better drug taking in this latest study um, because, you know, going back to the empowerment thing that, you know, patients um, want to want to be able to, um, you know, both contain and control their infections so that they can, you know, live longer, healthier lives, but also keep others from from becoming infected. Well, then what do you think, what do you think, excuse me, Tony, what do you think um, the, so, so that seems to be the same medications or similar medications, just a different dose than, than the current Truvada? Yeah. So, so Chris, I'll go back. So for your, for your um, ophthalmologist, you know, listeners. So you think about a drug like acyclovir and we have different, what's called pro drugs of it, right? So, you know, valacyclovir, gancyclovir, those type of things, you know, Basically, what we do is we we modify the chemical structure um, such that it either you know the the, the dosing is more um, amendable to to the route of administration. So mm -hmm. you know with these drugs given orally, if you were to give tenofovir just by itself, only about fifty percent of it gets absorbed through the GI tract. But what they did early on is that they modified the drug and made what they call a pro drug out of it. So they chemically modified it. Um, in a way that it, the absorption is, is far greater, you know, 90 plus percent now through the GI tract. But what happens once it gets absorbed, um, that modification that they actually tag the molecule with actually cleaves off in the blood and you get, you get tenofovir back. Mm. And so with Truvada, the, the dose of tenofovir is, is 300 milligrams daily in that, in that fixed dose tablet. Um, this Discover trial that I just told you about from a couple of weeks ago, um, they're actually looking at a newer version of, of tenofovir called tenofovir alafenamide. Mm -hmm. It's, it's, it's still tenofovir, tenofovir, but it's a new pro drug formulation, um, where we can actually give a far reduced dose. So, um, doses of tenofovir alafenamide, depending on what other drugs you're giving with, you give it on a, a range of about 10 to 25 milligrams per day. Mm -hmm. So about a 10, you know, a tenfold reduction in dose. Um, just by modifying the drug, you know, chemically in, in, hmm. in some, some manner. And so why that's important now is, 
you know, go back to the, to the nephrotoxicity and, and bone marrow mm -hmm. um, density um, um, problems. We think that if we maintain patients on this newer version of, of tenofovir, it's called TAF or TAF, um, as opposed to the older version, we think that we can start to control some of these, some of these long-term adverse events simply because we're given a far, right. far reduced dose. Yeah, that's amazing. So then let me, a couple last, last few things. And, and, um, but so tell me about, we had just, and you and I had discussed this uh, a couple of weeks ago, um, cause I saw it in the news, but tell me about the patient. Now we have two patients that have been cured of HIV. Tell me mm -hmm. first, what does that mean? I mean, cured where, I mean, right now you can essentially be completely undetectable. Um, with, with medications, but that's not the same as being cured. So can you m tell me about the distinction and then, you know, what's the anomaly with these patients that you and I were discussing and, and those sorts of things? Yeah, correct. So I think the first thing we need to set out is that there's different definitions of cure. And so the patients that you're talking to, talking about, the one that was in the news a couple of weeks back, um, these are what we call sterilizing cure, right? So um, no medication, they have no HIV medications and They've been off their medications for for a number of months, and there's there's no virus detectable in their in their body. Now that's a sterilizing cure. There's other there's other cures. You know, you think about a functional cure. So, for instance, if I can if I can give somebody a daily medication, you know, once a day, and um, and they're adherent to it, and they come back to clinic every six months, I draw blood and I don't find virus. I know that there's virus in them because if we had them stop therapy the virus would come back in their blood. So they have it. It's just suppressed to a level where I can't find it with commercial assays. You know, you could almost think of that as a functional cure, right? Right. Their, their mortality, you know, almost, you know, it doesn't meet an uninfected person's mortality table, but, you know, we're getting pretty close. I would say, you know, a 20-year-old that's infected with HIV today, we put them on um, antiretroviral therapy and they're adherent to their medication, they probably have 50 years of life left in them, you know, mm. if not more. So you uh -huh. think about that um, as where we've come in the last 30 years. So we'll call that a functional cure, right? So yep. they still have the virus, but but it's still there. The The cool thing is is this news from a couple of weeks ago. This was, you know, we hope it's going to be the second sterilizing cure. So the the study authors are are hesitant to call it a, a, a cure at this point because it's they're only about 18 months out. Um, and we like to see, you know, a few more years of data before before we call it a cure. But if you go back to cure number one, so this was Tim Brown, who's also known as the Berlin patient. So Tim Brown um, was a was a patient in uh, I think 2007. I think we're about 12 years out from his cure now. Um, he's a patient that had HIV and had leukemia as well. Um, and what what he was able to do or what his, his providers were able to do was um, to give him a stem cell transplant from a donor who actually had a mutation in their one of their cell receptors um, that HIV likes to use to get into the cells. And this mutation essentially rendered this donor cells um, 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 not able to be infected by HIV, right? So resistant to HIV. And this you know, this mutation so, I'm is... I'm sorry, can I, can I stop you real quick? So would that mean yeah. that the donor himself wasn't, what, wouldn't be able to be infected or is yeah, it a much correct. lower risk? So correct. what percent no. of the, sorry, now that I'm, I'm kind of on a different tangent, but yeah. what percent of the population has that gene? 
So it's mostly uh, Northern Europeans, and I think it's it's maybe three percent. Hmm. Yeah, really. And so, interestingly enough, you know, a lot of these patients they think might have been the, some of the similar patients that, um, if you think back in your history lessons, were na- were not able to be infected with the plague, and it, it could have been maybe the same cellular receptor. Hmm. Um, but yeah, there's a certain you know percentage of the population that you know you can expose them to HIV all you want, and they they won't get infected. And it's because one of their cellular receptors, the CCR5 receptor that HIV likes to use to get into the cells, is mutated in, in a way where HIV can't get in. So with Tim Brown, the Berlin patient, he had his, you know, when you go through a stem cell transplant, you know this, you know, you, there's you, the, the, um, the conditioning regimen is, is, is very intense, right? So often mm-hmm. you're using total body irradiation, you're using a you know, T cell depletion, you're using a lot of chemotherapy, those type of things. But essentially what they did is they, they wiped out his immune system um, and killed off all the HIV that was in his body and then reconstituted him with this, this donor cells um, that were resistant to HIV, these donor cells engrafted. And, you know, they, they continue to look essentially he's, like I said, I think about 12 years out now and he still has no signs Mm -hmm. of HIV. The cool thing was when this Second group from London presented this, this second patient back in Seattle a couple of weeks back. Tim Brown was actually in the audience for this, for this presentation. Mm-hmm. So it was kind of cool. So the London patient, which is patient number two, um, he's, he's just a little bit different. So he had Hodgkin lymphoma, um, but, but still the same thing. He was, he was, uh, given a stem cell transplant, um, with, with this Delta 32 CCR5. Um, donor that's essentially resistant to resistant to HIV, and and he's like I said, he's 18 months out, and they haven't found signs of HIV. Um, but but we still need to go out further. Um, mm-hmm. This this strategy has been tried by a number of other groups, and um, you know some groups have seen have seen uh, have seen no HIV for you know two three years, and then the virus rebounds. What we think is. Um, the, the amount, the time it takes for the virus to rebound is probably relative to the amount of, or the size of the reservoir that's remaining. So, mm-hmm. um, you know, if you have a large reservoir remaining, the virus is going to rebound pretty quick. Whereas if you maybe just have a few cells that were infected that, you know, you may be able to go a couple of years before the virus rebounds type of thing. But, but so these patients though, both of them, uh, but the, what's unique about the first one is, I mean, he was almost like brink of death, right? Like yeah. that's how, that's how sick they get from the initial treatment. Yeah. And then, but, but was unique about the second patient was that he, they didn't have to do as much, right? He, he, he didn't get that close. Yeah. So Tim Brown, um, actually I think had to go through two rounds of stem cell transplant. Um, whereas the London patient only did a single, uh, stem cell transplant. They were both what you call allogeneic. So obviously a donor that, that was, you know, unrelated to them. Mm-hmm. Um, but yeah, um, you know, both patients, as far as I'm aware, had mild graft versus host post-transplant, but uh, both engrafted. Um, but yeah, so I, you know, I'm, I'm far, far ways away from the oncology community, but um, I would, you know, this isn't a strategy that we can use on a large, large right. population basis. I would, you know, the mortality alone with the stem cell transplant, particularly an allogeneic stem trans- cell transplant is probably... I don't know what the numbers are, but I'm guessing it's probably upwards of 20%, depending on, mm, wow. you know, you know, so it's not a, 
it's not a uh, it's not a strategy that you can use on a large scale. But at the same time, the science that we're we're able to learn from these two patients. So Tim Brown, in particular, you know, he's really devoted his his life and his body to science since then. So you know, he's been in a number of of, of trials where he's you know he'll let he'll let researchers take lymph node biopsies, you know, lumbar punctures, you know, you mm. name it. And Tim uh-huh. Brown's donated it to science. So, so um, I think the science that we can learn from these two, these two patients is is pretty pretty unique. So then, um, I, I've well, every time I say I have just one a couple more no, questions, and you start talking, I got, yeah. I've got like five more. But yeah. so, why do you think? Um, I know you're not a virologist, but why do you think this this virus is? You know, like you were talking about, some some viruses are just super virulent, right? Like, mm-hmm. you know, I cough on something. Ten hours later, somebody comes by and wipes their hand on it, and then rubs their nose or whatever, and and boom, right? Yeah. But then <clears throat> you can get this with, <clears throat> excuse me, blood to blood contact, and you're, you're talking like one out of a hundred. You know, I mean, yeah, one out of fifty. W- what's with that? Um, you know, I don't. It's a it's a good question. I don't know. I think, um, I think obviously it has to do with the, the, the load, the viral load, um, of the infecting person. So we know that patients that present with, you know, millions of copies of HIV in their blood, they are a lot more infectious and likely to transmit to a partner than somebody that might come in with, you know, 200 copies per mil in their blood. So it has a lot to do with the the load of the infect, you know, the the dose of the virus that you're given to somebody. Um, but as as for why the virus itself is seems to be less infectious than say a hepatitis, you know, uh, you're you're stretching my virology mm-hmm. knowledge no, there. Okay, Chris. okay. I, no, that's all right. That's all right. I um, it's just interesting to me is all. Yeah, absolutely. I I agree. I agree. Because it's so hard to kill, seems like, um, but it's it's. You know, it's also very challenging to to get, and so that's just it's sort of conundrum that's interesting. Yeah. So I think you know one of the I think one of the things that we do know is you know HIV, you know, is a retrovirus, right? So it it actually gets reverse transcribed back into DNA, and then that DNA gets inserted into your your own genome, and then you know depending on what cell it's in, that 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 cell can go into a resting state and have the viral, the proviral DNA inserted into its genome and be, be latent for, for months and months or years. And so, um, you know, our drugs that we have only work on replicating virus. Right, so right. What, what do we Is do? Is that all of them across the all, board? Yeah. All of our drugs only work on replicating virus. Huh. So, so that's been the kind of the, the, the barrier or the bar, if you will, for a cure is how, how do we find every cell that's infected? And how do we, uh, you know, either kill that cell or or eliminate that cell, or at least that that proviral DNA um, when it's not replicating? So, you know, some of the recent strategies we've used are, you might hear this kick and kill approach. So mm. we can actually give give drugs that that activate cells, oh, right? Take yeah, take them right. out of that resting state. So you think about HDAC inhibitors, so histone histone deacetylase inhibitors. These are these are cellular activators. And so we've tried to give, you know, multiple doses of, of these HDACs and then 
give a large dose of, you know, antiretroviral therapy or, you know, maybe take it up to a four or five drug cocktail. And we, we just can't seem to get all of the reservoir, you know, hmm. out of the body. And if you think about the, 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 the barrier or the, the, how high the bar set, you know, you think about if there's one cell left in the body that has, you know, this latent proviral DNA, if it's a replication competent virus and we activate that cell, you know, it could reestablish, you know, an infection throughout the whole body. So, mm -hmm. so I think, you know, we're in exciting times in HIV research. We're, we're just now, you know, mapping all of the exact areas in the body. Um, one of the things that I found fascinating from the, from the, this conference, I'd always known it was a small number, but um, actually when we put somebody on, on treatment, um, less than 1% of, of this proviral DNA is actually found in the blood um, in, a, in a patient that's on treatment. So hmm. the, the reservoir sites seem to be um, lymph nodes, uh, lymphatics, you know, the CNS. Um, and we're, we're learning more about these reservoir sites every day that, you know, the lungs may be a reservoir site, fat tissue may be a reservoir site. So, um, we're learning more about that. And as a pharmacologist, then, you know, it's my job to make sure that we're getting drug to all the areas, um, that we, that we find virus. And so that's really what, um, what my studies are, are undertaking right now. And it, and the CNS would be the most challenging to get the medication to, correct? Absolutely. Yep. yep. So, you know, getting drugs to cross the blood brain barrier, um, you know, insufficient quantities and, and not have, you know, significant side effects is, is definitely challenging. So, um, what's the consensus with the origin of, of HIV? Is it simian immunodeficiency um, deficiency virus? Is it from, yeah, we think it's probably think? zoonotic, you know, it probably made the jump from, from some primates to, to, um, to humans, you know, in Africa, probably somewhere on the, on the West coast of Africa, you know, I, when that's still the current thinking yeah. from, from eating, right. Is it yeah, correct from eating, from, you know, what they call bush meat, um, you know, yep. that type of thing. Interesting. Yeah. Interesting. Well, so, um, the future last thing, the future, what, what is, what are you excited about? What do you think is on the horizon for HIV treatments and prevention? Yep. So I'm excited about a number of things, you know, I'm, I'm excited about the cure agenda. So, you know, we're, we're learning more and more about reservoir sites every day. Um, we're learning more about how to get drugs into these reservoir sites, how to reactivate reservoirs, uh, latent virus, those type of things. So I think the cure, the cure field is, is a very exciting area right now, but then on just your, your everyday treatment side, we're doing a lot of things that that's really cool right now as well. So in the next probably nine to 12 months, you're going to see um, injectable HIV drugs come online um, that are given every either four weeks or eight weeks. Mm. So you can think about somebody that's on medication every day right now with one, one pill once a day. And this patient could within the next 12 months go on to a regimen where they um, are getting just six injections a year. You know, Yeah, so they could get an injection every time they get a test. Exactly. Yeah, exactly. So that's cool. And we've surveyed our patients and our patients um, seem to really want it. Um, and we did some of the clinical trials at our, at our clinic with these, with these, uh, with these drugs and actually the injectable combinations, we're only using two drugs to treat. Mm -hmm. Um, so, um, so I would say within the next 12 months, we'll have a once every eight week injection. Um, the other thing is we should have, you know, in the coming years, we'll probably have a whole host of options available for prep and probably, 
um, options that are that are long acting or extend release. So you think about mm. somebody that comes into the pharmacy and gets an injection every eight weeks or maybe every three months because they're at you know at risk. Yeah. Um, so so sort of a, a prophylactic strategy. So I think we're doing a lot with our with our treatments. We obviously have more treatments available now. Um, so we can really tailor our treatments to our individual patients. We know more and more about these about these treatments and our patients are living longer. So now we're able to study things like what happens when our patients, you know, get into their sixties or seventies to, you know, you know, we could start studying things like long-term cardiovascular risk, yeah. long-term, you know, bone, bone uh, risk and those type of things. So it's really exciting times. Yeah. Well, yeah. I, okay. Well, I've got, I've got a bunch more questions, but I'm going to yeah. be respectful of your time. No, it's good. It's good. We'll stop there. That's a good point. And we can maybe pick this up again in the future yeah. and maybe even talk two. about TB. Yeah, absolutely. We can do a part two down the road. Awesome. Well, well, Tony, thanks a lot for your time tonight. I really appreciate it. Yeah. Um, and uh, and we'll, we'll talk soon. Absolutely.